Good morning, church. Would you turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 5? This morning we will complete our time in Luke chapter 5. Next week in the new year we'll begin chapter 6. This morning's passage is verses 33 to 39, continuing a conversation that we began last week between the Pharisees and our Lord Jesus. As I read these words this morning, please remember that these are not my words, but the words of Yahweh our God. Verse 33, And they, the Pharisees, said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees also do likewise, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins And it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's ask God's blessing on our time as we begin this morning. Father, we come to you each week hungry, hungry for the word of life, which is life to us. Lord, this is the last day of the year 2023, the year of our Lord, and we are still at the end of this year, a hungry people in need of you. So please fulfill that desire in each of us as we have come faithfully to gather together and worship the risen Savior, fill our hearts with His truth, fill our hearts with conviction where we do not align with His truth, and then build us up in every way into His image that we might go out and bear His image in our lives to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a question for you as I begin this morning. What would be your New Year's wish for the church in the year 2024? The unity of the brethren should always make that list. I'm sure almost everyone in here would also ask for a greater love for God and a greater love for His people. What about a renewed commitment to the local church and thriving Christian communities where we are covenanted to applying all of the Bible to all of our lives, where our fellowship around Christ puts roots in the ground which will last for generations. I'd like to add to this list something of which there is a great dearth in the Western church today. The lack of it has 
gotten us into the ecclesiastical mess that we are currently in. And without growth in this area, we will never see the great cathedrals and institutions of the new Christendom set up. I would ask for the church in 2024 that God would give us mature biblical discernment. I do not mean the cultic blogs online where immature and loveless cage stagers attempt to do the church's thinking for her. These are, in reality, nothing more than web-based Pharisees trying to pull the untrained sheep of Christ into their online orbit. No, I am speaking of what Paul said to the Hebrews, that every member here, especially every head of household, and our brothers and sisters across the nation and world would have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, from Hebrews 5, 14. Charles Spurgeon once said, discernment is not a matter of telling the difference between right and wrong. It is a matter of telling the difference between right and almost right. Now, he's actually not saying anything different than what was said by Yahweh God in that verse from Hebrews I just read. With the wisdom that comes through years of pastoral ministry, the Prince of Preachers reminds us here that the church didn't get from a biblically-backed courageous resistance to British tyranny for the sake of the worship of Jesus in the new world by the Puritan settlers to the year 2020 and an almost universal capitulation to blatant totalitarian overreach. They didn't get there because they forgot to tell the difference between black and white, no matter what Black Lives Matters might say. It took years of the diluting of the Christian mind and thousands of failures on the part of pastors and congregants to tell the difference between right and almost right. We veered way off course, haven't we? This is where we find the disciples of John and the onlooking crowd in today's passage, waffling back and forth between the new and better Adam's kingdom and covenant and the worn out, unsustainable, even damnable teaching of the religious leaders of the day. John's disciples... The onlooking crowd lacked discernment. They were sheep so mixed up they couldn't figure out who was the real shepherd. Well, in today's text, we're going to move through three different phases or sections. The first is a controversy over fasting in verse 33. This is followed by a clever response from our Lord Jesus, verses 34 to 35. Then finally this morning, we'll end with a couple of parables and a concluding proverb, verses 36 to 39. Let's begin with the controversy over fasting. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do likewise. But yours, Jesus, yours eat and drink. And the question here marks the third time now in chapter 5 that Jesus is being challenged by the elites. The Pharisees' blood pressure, you'll remember, began to rise back in 
chapter 5, verse 21, when Jesus offered forgiveness of sins to the man with paralysis. Last week in chapter 5, verse 30, they worked up enough heat to grumble a little bit to Jesus' disciples about his choice of dinner guests. And you can see in verse 33 this morning, they've now finally reached the level of frustration to squeak out a challenge. They said to him, this is the Pharisees speaking, we know that from the context of the preceding verses. But in Matthew's gospel, we read this. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, asking him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The disciples of John asked the Lord Jesus a probing question. And depending on your translation, if you have, for example, an ESV in front of you, Mark's gospel says something even different from that. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, Mark reports, and people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It makes it sound as if there's another audience that has been asked, is asking Jesus another question. And did you notice that in Matthew and Mark's accounts, the question was asked of Jesus, why? Why is it this way? But in Luke's, there's a statement given. We, the Pharisees, do X, and so do John's disciples, but your disciples do Y. These slight variations in the synoptic gospels have been fodder for the accusations of the unregenerate against the word of God for around two millennia now. And there's many such slight variations throughout the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I want to say three things briefly about this before we move on. Number one, God used human agents to write the Bible. Know this first of all. Peter reports to us that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man. But men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's from 2 Peter 1 verses 20 to 21. It has been said many times that God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And this is a true Statement: The fact that men were the means to communicate eternal truth does not necessarily undermine the quality and character of that truth. The scripture reveals quite the reverse. God worked through them to give us his perfect word. Also, number two, God worked through the writer's own personal communication style and for the sake of his target audience. Matthew, as you see here in the comparison I just gave, didn't speak like Mark. Neither Matthew nor Mark have the rich Greek vocabulary of Luke, and nobody spoke quite like John. Each of these writers had different readers. Example, Matthew's largely Jewish audience versus Luke's largely Gentile audience. Yet, all 66 books of the Old and New Testament were written by men with their own particular writing style, to a specific audience without changing the peerless nature of God's eternal word. What a miracle. 
Lastly, if there were legitimate challenges to what I've been talking about the last few moments, what is called biblical inerrancy, that there is no error in the Word of God, you would have heard about it by now. The completed canon of Scripture has been around for about 1,900 years, and all the challenges of the atheists and heathen amount to nothing more than the suppression of truth. They're a bunch of red herring excuses to flee from what the truth demands of every human creature, absolute submission and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. What's their recommendation for the standard of truth anyway? Science? How much misinformation has been spread through science over just the last 10 years? The fact that we have four different gospels from four different writers who compiled multitudes of eyewitness testimony gives us powerful assurance to not just the life of Jesus, the Messiah, but all that God's word reports to his people. And the answer to the apparent confusion in these three stories is what theologians, pastors, and even lay people understand as and can call harmonization. There's a crowd around Jesus, crowd of Galileans, some disciples of John, and you remember those visiting Pharisees. They came up from Judea because they wanted to see what Jesus was up to. Is this guy the real deal or is he trying to take our thunder? Did the Pharisees make this statement and Luke report that? Yes, that is the fact. That's what happened. Did the disciples of John chime in as well? Yes, yes they did. More gently in the form of a question, but they've been gaslit by the religious leaders and they're unsure at this point if what their master, their rabbi, John the Baptist, had told them about Jesus the Messiah was even true at this point. He's not fasting. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Jesus, you see... Did the crowd ask the question as well? Yes. Yes, they did. Like a pack of duffel puds parroting the Pharisees. That's right, chief. You said it best. Couldn't have asked the question better myself. After seeing unparalleled miracles and hearing many powerful teachings of Jesus, the crowd cannot shake the incorrect standard of righteousness that has been taught to them all their lives by the religious elites. You can see how taking all three Gospels together, we actually get more information rather than the, just the same information parroted over and over again. God is so good to us. Look at verse 33 again. The disciples of John fast, and Luke is also the only Gospel that adds, and they also offer prayers. Luke has a focus on prayer throughout his gospel, likely why he mentioned this edition. And the disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray, but your disciples, the disciples of Jesus, they don't. Now, our familiarity in a southern Christian context where we've all grown up in, most of us have grown up in a Bible belt, we've heard Bible stories all of our lives, we think of the Pharisees, we think of hypocrisy, and it tempts us to dismiss this as just another temperamental tantrum from a bunch of self-righteous prigs who can't stand someone else stealing their limelight. 
But this is, in fact, not an idle charge. Fasting was a major part of Jewish life, an old covenant piety. Personal and corporate fasting are both described and prescribed in the law of Moses. There was to be a perennial fast, for example, on the Day of Atonement. That was the most important fast of the Jewish year. There was a four-day memorial fast leading up to the anniversary of Jerusalem's first fall. And all Israel, excuse me, all Israel and Judah regularly sought God's deliverance by initiating seasons of fasting on their own. King David fasted frequently, as did other kings in the history of Israel. Nehemiah fasted, and so did Ezra. Many of the prophets fasted during their ministries. Fasting was not on the periphery of religious life. It wasn't something only highly spiritual people did. It wasn't optional. It was, in fact, expected. And in some cases, it was commanded. Though the Pharisees wrongly understood fasting as a means of gaining some extra credit before Yahweh, extra merit, and I'll talk more about that in just a minute, if Jesus refused to fast and teach His disciples to do the same, it would be a blatant disregard for the teachings and example of the law and the prophets. He would be guilty of ignoring his own warning from his most famous sermon. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. From Matthew 5.19, the Sermon on the Mount. If Jesus was a teacher of righteousness, and he was, and if he was to fulfill for us all righteousness, and he did, and if he was to guide us into all righteousness, and he has and will continue to do so, then he's got no excuse for he and his followers not fasting. Right? Sounds right. Almost. Maybe. Before I get to Jesus' answer, a moment ago I compared the crowd of onlookers to a group of duffel puds. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Narnia stories, these were a group of dwarves who served on the island of Coriacan, the banished star. Though this wizened sage only tried to help the duffers, as they were short and called, they eventually rebelled against him and were cursed with monopodism. They were given only one leg. This made them angry, and so they cast an invisibility spell on themselves so that they wouldn't have to look at their uglification. But even that got old, and they sought someone who could reverse the invisibility spell. And since that time, they ran around blindly following their chief, parroting everything that he says. When Queen Lucy attempts to offer them some counterpoints and wisdom... They momentarily waver, but in the end, they always go back to whatever the chief duffer says. Duffelpuds have zero discernment. This seems to be the case for the people of Galilee, including the disciples of John. After weeks, maybe months of Jesus' teaching and miracles, all these people still can't discern the truth from the error. They can't tell right from what in the moment probably felt like right, almost right, as Jesus is going to reveal, not at all right. 
It is not Christ. It, Christ will, excuse me, Christ will teach each of us that we are not to be tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming from Ephesians 4.14. Contrary to some outside opinions, Jeremy and Daniel and I and Dustin are not interested in being anyone's cult leaders. God did not call us to think for the sheep. He called us to teach the sheep to think. I want to give you three avenues for growing in discernment over the coming year. Number one, get practice. Number one, get practice. There is no replacement for growing in discernment than regular and substantial intake of all of God's word. Like many of you, I enjoy meditating on smaller portions of Scripture during devotional time. Remember, however, that thinking deeply on bits of the text will not stop your finite brain from forgetting bunches of the text. You need both. You need to take in little bits and meditate on it, and then you need to take in large chunks. Chew on the small portions in the morning, and then find time throughout the day that you can redeem For example, in the car or when you go to exercise or work out, to listen and take in larger portions of Scripture in one sitting. It is amazing what you can learn about the Bible when you don't just take a verse in, you take a book in. That may sound like a lot for some of you to swallow, but if you're wanting to grow in discernment this year, challenge yourself, even over the course of a week's time maybe. Got a project going on or some drive time, I'm going to muscle my way through Genesis in a week. You'll be amazed at the things that you'll add to your learning because you, you compartmentalized all of that into just a small amount of time. Number two, learn the difference between commands and convictions. Learn the difference between commands and convictions. Commands are timeless and universal. Convictions are temporary and personal. Commands are mandates. They are laws for all. Convictions must never be mandated. Our personal principles should never be made into laws. I'll mention in just a minute that Jesus does expect that his people will fast. But nowhere does he command a frequency and a kind of fasting. Our Lord Jesus never did. And so neither should we. Lastly, I want to encourage you, reject the absolute stupidity of cancel culture and devoteeism. Did you notice what's really going on in verse 33? The Pharisees have got their group of groupies. They don't want to lose them to the up-and-coming new kid on the block. So they try and pin Jesus in a way that will get the crowd to say, ah, you're right, there's one problem, that means we're done with him. This is precisely how people are tossed from one dumb idea to another in our world today. Devoteeism and cancel culture. Partisanship, tribe mentality, followers of men, and then wholesale rejection of everybody else. It does make things really easy to do it that way. It's kind of fun until somebody starts passing out Kool-Aid. But it isn't biblical discernment. Let me ask you two simple questions this morning. Think of your favorite Christian personality or your favorite Christian teacher. Can you think of anywhere that you disagree with them? 
If not, that's not a good sign. Let me ask you another question. Are there Christian personalities or teachers that because of their stance on Christian nationalism or the Moscow mood or Donald Trump that you will go around and slander them to others because they are worthless at this point? If so, that's a problem. It's a good thing Jesus didn't treat us that way. Calvin said, Prudence and caution are necessary to prevent wicked and cunning men from sowing divisions among us on any slight grounds. Almost right. He goes on to say, Satan has a wonderful dexterity, no doubt in laying those kinds of snares, and it is an easy matter to distress us about just a trifle. Calvin's right. Brothers, this weight falls chiefly on us. What is your wife listening to right now? What are your kids reading? Are they moving forward with what sounds almost right and over time slowly being led astray? Take glad responsibility over your own house, men. Get deep and wide in the word of God until you can apply wisdom to those who are entrusted in your care. Now let's turn to verse 34 and 35 and look at Jesus' clever response. And he said to them, Can you make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. It's a straightforward question from our Lord Jesus Christ. Is a wedding the right time to be fasting? The Christian Standard Bible makes the Greek participle may, which means do not, appear even more emphatic in that version. It says, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them. Can you? You can't do it. Mark's gospel backs that translation up by saying, so long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. They can't. It was common in those days for families and attendees of a wedding to fast before the ceremony. Everyone would then break fast together when the bridegroom appeared to get his bride. The I do's were said and the cake was finally cut. But Jesus isn't speaking here of an earthly wedding celebration. From the mouth of Isaiah, foretold of our Lord Jesus, for your husband... Israel is your maker, whose name is Yahweh of hosts, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For Yahweh has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. From Isaiah chapter 62, it will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her and your land married. For Yahweh takes pleasure in you and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. 
Jeremiah also speaks of Yahweh's coming to wed Israel. So does the prophecy of Ezekiel. Hosea's prophecy is a whole living parable of a whore being made a bride. And in chapter 2, he foretells of a time when Yahweh will bring his bride back into covenant again. The reason that Jesus' disciples are not fasting is because at that moment, the long-awaited eschatological bridegroom had showed up on the scene. Imagine how that statement hits the Pharisees. Jesus has already said he's the son of man from Ezekiel and Daniel. And that he's got the authority to forgive sins. He's just feasted with tax collectors and sinners in contrast to everything they thought of their Messiah. And that the feasting that he was having with those tax collectors and sinners was illustrative of the great coming eschatological Wedding where Jesus is the husband who is your maker who calls the wayward bride home. Jesus is saying, I am that bridegroom. I am the one who's come to wed Israel and rescue her from her whoredom. And she is to be mine. The Pharisees and their lawyers must have been furious. Consider also, this is an interesting thought experiment, what John's disciples would have thought. It was perhaps this same group of men currently sucked into the purity spiral of the elites who questioned their own teacher, John the Baptist, about his tanking popularity rates. When all were going over to be baptized by Jesus and his disciples, they said, Master, what are you going to do about this? You remember John's reply? He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Don't you all remember that John said that I'm the bridegroom? Does it make sense to continue seasons of fasting when I finally got here? Conviction of this must have brought those men to a state of misery they not only missed him sitting right in front of them, but had even been led to question his legitimacy and integrity by the, by the words and the teachings of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus isn't teaching that all fasting had at that point forever come to an end. We see in the verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. You're taken away, you probably immediately think of the crucifixion. And of course that comes to our minds, sorrow and mourning and fasting. The disciples perhaps fasted in that time when Jesus was in the earth. But don't forget what Jesus has just said in this context in Luke. Can you make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? The issue here is the bodily presence of Jesus with his people. I don't think Jesus was speaking of a three-day feasting, or excuse me, fasting window while his body lie lifeless in the earth. This last week, Jake Torgerson posted a meme in Mattermost of Aragorn sternly addressing Mary and Pippin with the words, In Adam all die. For those of you who saw it, get a big smile at Pippin's joyful reply. Yes, but what about second Adam? That's the way that we should think about Jesus's words here. We've just finished our celebration of Christ's first advent. Came thou long expected Jesus. Not come, he came. 
But now that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, we are awaiting second advent. And throughout that age, our longing will necessarily include seasons of fasting. Jesus expected that. Now, there are some of you here this morning who have been dreading this part of the text. I just know I'm going to get convicted this morning about fasting, and I hate it. Lord of the Rings on the mind. Remember the difference between a command and a conviction. Oh, good. It's not a command. So that means that I don't have to. Beloved at Christ the King, Jesus' words in Luke 5.35 are meant to help you. After he ascended on high to the Ancient of Days, Jesus expected his followers would resume Advent longing for him which would include occasional seasons of fasting. That fasting is a means for God to restrain our cravings for the things of earth and increase our longing for the Savior's return from heaven when there will be no more fasting but only feasting. Now, who doesn't want that kind of longing for Jesus? Many of you are considering New Year's resolutions right now, and don't worry, I'm not going to come at fasting from that angle today. The fasts leading up to the weddings in Israel in those days were meant to build up to and increase the joy of the celebration of the great day, the wedding day. Have you considered how regular fasting in expectant hope of the second coming of Jesus can increase both your current and even future joy when he comes? Let me give you three things briefly to consider about fasting. Number one, keep it secret. You... When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. From our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, 17 and 18. The fasting of the Pharisees was an unholy attempt to merit God's grace and hypocritical showmanship before men to gain the popularity. By contrast, Jesus calls for secret fasting between you and God alone so that your Father in secret will see you and reward you. You should, however, probably tell your spouse that you're fasting so that she doesn't set you a full plate of food at the dinner table and then ask you why you're not hungry. But, even in that moment, dress up and smile and converse with more joy and laughter because you're not fasting, or because you are fasting. But keep it a secret, and the joy of the Lord will be your reward. Number two, keep it simple. Don't take on too much at the start. If you've never fasted before, start with baby steps. Skipping one meal or giving up the coffee or chocolate for the day are good places to start. When that gets too easy, and it will, go to two meals a day. Remember, the point isn't power over appetite. The power comes in redirecting your appetites. Jesus told the devil, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God in his own season of fasting. Number three, keep it steady. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every single time. Set a regular time of fasting to keep yourself on track. The Didache, which is the oldest Christian writing outside of the Bible, it's not scripture, but it is the oldest kept manuscript outside of the Bible that we have 
spoke of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and how they fasted twice a week. The Pharisees would fast according to the Didache on Mondays and Thursdays. And it said, don't act like them. Don't join them in their peacockery. But the Didache still prescribed a two-day fast. It said Tuesdays and Fridays, which has been a practice of many Christians throughout the history of the church. Now, that's not a biblical command. It was convictional for the disciples in those days. They wrote it down in this document called the Didache, which is kind of like a welcome to Christianity. Here's some things that you need to know about Christ since there's no place to go buy a Bible. It was a convictional thing for them. And it's probably too much for you to consider fasting two whole 24-hour days if you've never done it before. So start with maybe one day where you're going to set aside that meal where you're not going to eat or you're going to withhold yourself from other things. A brother here recently told me that since God gave us 30 days or so in a month, he would give a tithe of days in the month of fasting. So he fasts about three days a month. Whatever it is, set something aside so that you can create consistency in your life. We at Christ the King are a people who want to be known for celebrating well. We want to show Clinton what it looks like to feast in the joy that our King reigns over us. Are you also prepared to show them that your King is worth more to you than all of the pleasures of feasting in this world in seasons of fasting? Every guy in this room wants the courage to be the first in every desperate attack and the last in every desperate retreat. But when there's hunger in the land, as happens in seasons of personal fasting, will you wear finer clothes and laugh louder than any man in the land, brothers? The process of conquering the world begins with the diligent training of our own hearts. Now, Jesus moves from his clever answer to a couple of parables and a concluding proverb in verses 36 to 39. He's just revealed to us, that is Jesus, that he is the eschatological bridegroom come to redeem Israel. And his presence necessarily means that some things are going to change. As you can see in our text this morning, some things just refuse to change. To illustrate this, our Lord makes three udes statements, or no one statements. No one does X, or no one would ever think to do why. These three sayings are also statements of incompatibility. Notice that it's always the old can't mix with the new. Or the new can't match or repair what was damaged in the old. Let's first consider these two parables. Jesus began to say, No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise he will tear both the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, it probably goes without saying that these axioms of Jesus have aged quite a bit. Most people don't try and patch anything anymore. There are many women among us who know how to do this, and kudos to you, sisters. Today, we live, unfortunately, in a largely disposable world. Cheap clothes, get a tear, throw it away, have a new one on your door in two business days. For most of human history, however, this was not the case. Thus, clothing was both difficult to make and very expensive. The mending of garments, therefore, was something that almost everyone had to figure out how to do. 
But even today, you know that when new clothes go through the washer and the dryer, be careful because they shrink. Old clothes, not as much. Hence, it would make no sense to mix the two. One old garment and repair it with a new garment because they will ruin one another. Notice how Jesus' focus in Luke is on the new garment, the damage that's done to the new. Verse 36 says that two things happen. He says that the new gets torn and the new won't match the old. Whatever Jesus is saying here, he is at least saying this. You can destroy the new that Christ is bringing by mixing it in a wrong way with the old. The theme is similar in the second parable. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out. The skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Here's a brief skinny on wineskins. The ancient world had only one option for the preservation of the blood of the grape, and that was to turn it into wine. I will not apologize to teetotalers for this accurate report of human history. No one ever bottled non-alcoholic fruit juice for the consumption of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially no one with the last name Welch. This transformation process is called fermentation. And the vessel of choice was the body skin of an animal, usually a sheep or a goat. During the leavening process, there would be a subsequent expansion of gas within the pouch. In the new wineskin, the still supple container would grow with the swelling juice inside, and both were preserved. But if anyone was foolish enough to use an old wineskin, having been exposed for some time to the air and created oxidation, which made a brittle surface, you know what happens. Pop. The whole project, both the wine and the skin, is a total loss. No, Jesus said new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Again, the story points out the point. By mixing the new with the old, the new is destroyed. And in the second parable, you see, so is the old. What are we to make of these two? What lesson is Jesus getting at here? Commentators and theologians have been arguing about these sayings of Jesus for a very long time. There are a number of different interpretations. We have to be careful that we do not push the parable and the illustration too far. For example, we cannot conclude from these two parables that subsequent to the inauguration of the New Covenant, the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible, is moot and irrelevant and we no longer have to obey it. Nice try, Andy Stanley. How much of this book in your lap today is breathed out by God? All of it. How much is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness? All of it. How much of it will equip you with competency and ready you for every single good work? All of it. Jesus never said, my burden is easy because I can take out two-thirds of your Bible. He never said that. At the same time, something changed when Christ came. The old covenant commanded perfect obedience to God. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is 
Your God, Yahweh, is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Leviticus 18, 5 states, Keep my statutes and my judgments, for the man who does these things will live by them. I am the Lord. And of course, our response today is, but how can I? I have sinned since I was a small child. The Bible tells me that I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm a goner from the get-go. I'm a sinner doomed from the start. For Old Testament Jews who felt this way, the law of God was doing its work perfectly. Remember that Jesus said in last week's text that he didn't come to call righteous people. Well, how did they get righteous? Well, they thought that if they kept the law as best as they could remember, can't think of a time when I've broken it, I'm good. I'm righteous. I don't need anything else. Don't need to repent. Don't need a Savior. I've got this taken care of. Jesus said instead that he came to call sinners to repentance. Now, metanoia, the Greek word for repentance, is not... Turning to Jesus, not only. And it's not only turning away from your sins. True repentance also involves turning away from every attempt to attain a righteousness before God on your own. That's true repentance. You will never be able to attain a holy standing before God through your own works. Never. And you can't fix a works righteousness system by taking little pieces out of Jesus' system and going, oh, that kind of goes good right here. I like the feasting idea. I'm still going to try and work for my salvation. I'll throw in some fasting too. Oh, Jesus said we didn't have to fast. Well, what about the cutting off your arm thing? Maybe if I do that, then I can get there. I mean, people have done all sorts of crazy things throughout the history of the church. Taking Jesus' teachings his new and better way, and trying to make it a works righteousness system. You can choose either the old or the new, but you can't blend the two. Now, don't get me wrong. Salvation is by works. Everyone who has ever gone to heaven or will go to heaven has been saved through obedience to God's perfect standard of righteousness set forth in the old covenant law. Everyone, without exception, obedience is required for salvation in every single case. But hear the grace of God for you lost person and also those who are saved among us. It isn't your obedience that matters. It's Jesus's. And so he gives a warning to the Pharisees in verse 39. And this is found only in Luke. No one after drinking the old wine wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. That should hit them like a big-time warning. Our Lord knew the hearts of the elites. He knew that they had drunk so deeply from the well of, we're able to make ourselves right before God. Their palates had become so accustomed to their own understanding of accruing holiness that when Jesus came with a cup full of his new covenant blood, he was to pour out for them, they would say, that's gross. I don't like the taste of that. We got this. Don't worry about it. We already did our own righteousness. No thanks. It has been rightly asserted that apart from Christianity, every other world religion, including Judaism, 
says that the way to salvation is do, do, do. You must do the works of righteousness in our system to gain everlasting life. But in the most beautiful and glorious of contrasts, Jesus Christ comes to us in our brokenness and sinfulness and says, done for you. Lost person in here today, do you believe that? Then call this Christ your Lord and God. Lost person, you who are comfortable right now in your attempts to make it on your own, you'll never get there. Reject the old way. Trust in Christ. Christ the King. Members of our church. You who were created in Christ Jesus for good works, that you should walk in them. Works that he gave you to do before the foundation of the world. Never confuse those works that God has commanded you to do with your bleeding surety who stands at the right hand of the Father. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and run 2024 for your king in thankful obedience. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text and how it shows us that you have in fact brought a new and better way. That the bridegroom has come among us. He has come back to kill the dragon and get the girl. Lord, thank you for saving us in the midst of our wickedness and sinfulness. And I pray that you would continue to do so. I pray that the baptisms that were witnessed by many in this room this morning who still do not know you would be a means of creating a right kind of jealousy and conviction to see there are people who are going forward, acknowledging their sin, putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And I pray that many more would do so and we would have many more to baptize at our next baptism Sunday in the coming year. And I pray for those of us who feel weak and guilt-ridden at the end of this year. So many failures, so many missed opportunities, so many things lost. And yet, Lord, we still ended the year perfectly righteous before you because of Jesus. So help us to look to him and devour his word in the coming year. Devote ourselves to it, much more than the books and the podcasts and the other things that we listen to and read. Let us give ourselves to the word anew this coming year, feeling deep within our hearts the Spirit, giving us personal convictions which we're to hold, but never passing those on to others, mandating them for another's life. And help us to be filled with the wisdom that comes through the Spirit giving us discernment. Let us be able to discern right from wrong, from right from almost right, which is still wrong. Give us that discernment power this coming year. And oh Lord, help us to network with other churches and plant churches and grow into Clinton and take over this county for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.